Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me. Each week, joined alongside media executive and a man who watched the inauguration yesterday with a naked with a blow-up doll and a Domino's pizza, Grail Hallett, and OTB producer and Syria Oz specialist, Sam Griswold. Today on OTB, we talked to Dominic Kinnear, a man who has done so much for U.S. soccer and soccer in the United States, one of the winningest MLS coaches of all time. Uh, The LA Galaxy just hired Greg Vanning, so I'm sure um, Greg will be bringing in his own staff, and Dominic will be looking for his next great adventure uh, on his coaching journey. So before we get going, guys, uh, you know, there's news. There's soccer news today, but what are we over today on Over the Ball before we get going? Uh, I I am over commentators who insist on using the word fascinating to describe a boring game. (laughs) <laughs> I, I watched I watched Liverpool Man United, which yeah. uh, last oh. weekend, which can only be described as boring. And the, the commentators were trying so hard to like just find a way to describe it as something other than boring, because I think they feel an obligation, you know, because it's such a big game. It's like, how could it possibly not be just incredibly fascinating? But it was boring. So I wish well, I would just say, well, that was a bore. Well, Manchester United sort of parked the bus. I thought they 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 finally came out and said that. I think they about three quarters of the way through the game, they're like, "All right, well, you know." But Manchester United almost won it too. So, uh, but it was yeah. it was a boring game with all that skill on that field. Uh, all the, uh, the I felt chipped. I was so psyched for that game, and then oh. like as it was going, I'm like, "Is this going to actually start to percolate?" And it never did. It was boring. Yeah, it was. I'd agree with that. And they should say it's boring when uh, don't lie to us, people. Sam, what do you got? Yeah, I'm over something specific that I've been over before. But uh, there was a moment in the Italian Super Cup yesterday when Weston McKenney actually gave away a penalty kick. Um, One of those things we've all done in a game where you're playing the ball in front of you and someone sneaks in behind. And as you go to kick it, he just gets a foot in and you kind of take him out. Um, going away from the goal at the edge of the box, but he gave away a penalty kick. Um, clearly a foul by the rules of the game and a penalty kick, but I, I just think we need to find some way to differentiate between a foul on a goal-scoring opportunity in the box and a foul that just has nothing to do with a, a chance on net. I, I, you know, Whether it's an indirect kick, I don't know what the answer is. I just think common sense needs to prevail in those situations. I mean, the difference between a ball getting crossed in and you tackling a guy who's about to head it in versus a guy going away from goal, just getting clipped at the edge of the box is, I don't know. It just can't be the same thing in my opinion. So So there's gotta be some nuance and you know, the rules are the rules, but there also has like better judgment needs to prevail. I I mean, especially if we have VAR and you can go look at it, it's just so clear. That's like unintentional. It's not a goal scoring opportunity. I, yeah. Well, they're, they're trying to take judgment out of judgment calls, uh, which is unfortunate. So one of the that's bothering me, it's really bothering me, is they don't call offsides when it's obviously offsides and they let the play continue. It's they just, do. It's just it's, concerning as a as a as a player, as a, yeah. a viewer, everything. It's just like, why bother? And, you know, part of one of the things the commentator said is there's a breakaway but he was offsides. They let the play continue. The keeper comes flying out on a breakaway. That's yeah. always where one of the players gets hurt and somebody's going to get hurt on a, a an obvious offsides call. So it's, I don't yeah, understand it, that one. It's confusing as hell for the players. Cause you know, the guy's off, you're waiting for the call. There is no call. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. They, they just should just change that. You're I don't off. get that. What's the logic there. When, when you're offside, you're offside. Yeah, what's the logic? Well, the, the logic is you don't want to cancel a good goal. So you have, if yeah. you have any doubt in your mind, you just keep the flag down and let the play continue and let it go to the VAR. Uh, if, you know, if the team oh. scores. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But okay. So fine. I understand that on a close one, but you know, Lingard's 10 yards off sides and they let the play continue. It's, you know. well, well, they had a play yesterday, which was really, and I'll make this quick in the Man City Villa game. Um, I think it was Rodri was in an offside position and the defender didn't know he was behind him. And then, uh, but they didn't call it offside because he wasn't in, involved in the play, but then he kind of came around the back of the defender. The defender had no idea he was there and he stripped the ball away and city ended up scoring the goal. And by the letter of the law, the, the play kind of reset when he came back into an onside position to steal the ball, the spirit of the play was, was incorrect. 
I, I felt like when they reviewed wow. it, they should have said that's really not legitimate. But yeah, it ended up leading to the a goal late in the game. It changed the game. That's an interesting one. Yeah. All right. So uh, one thing I want to talk about, I, I don't know if anybody or listeners out there, if you're following um, this journalist, Rory Smith, for the New York Times, but he just is doing a crackerjack job on following lots of things. But one of the one of the subjects that we've been talking about on the show here is the the, the disconnect between coaching and they're criticizing you know television schedules, but really TV makes it all work. That's where the money comes from. And you know, and having said that, it's really from the fan base. Um, you know, so fans pay the ad revenues. We pay. It's us. And I think one thing that's really been missing from all the the football, all the soccer we've been watching this year, are the fans. We miss them hugely. Uh, we are them. And uh, I think there's a lot of things that Rory talks about in this article. Uh, Sam, thanks for sending it to me um, about you know. Can we uh, lock ticket prices? Can we, you know, because most of the revenue comes from TV. Can we start to schedule with fans in mind? Uh, you know, they, they were having some games where they're away games. Uh, by the time the game ended, there was no train back to wherever they were going. Or, or you know, just consider the fans a little bit. What are your thoughts on the article, gentlemen? Yeah, well, first, it's, it's, it's coaches against, you know, TV because Klopp has been sounding off on it all the time. But as he as points Sam, out, in, as, a grill. <laughs> as, as he points out in the article, there's also this hierarchy amongst fans themselves, right? The match going fans, the season ticket right. holders, you know, don't like the fans who are just sitting at home because everything's catered to them. Um, so, I mean, I think he makes the, the, the very valid point that the vast majority of fans watch the game on TV. Um, there's just no debate mm -hmm. about that, whether it's within, right. you know, England or the whole world. But um, I do one, one thing I think he should have pointed out and a distinction I'd like to draw is I, I do think there is a difference between a fan who watches on TV, who lives in Liverpool and maybe can't afford to go to a game versus someone watching on TV in, in New Zealand. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would like to see there be a little more attention paid to those sort of local TV fans. So I think you can break it down again. Um, in, in Italy, for example, there's, you know, a, a lot of outcry because there's now a noon game every Sunday, which is to coincide with primetime in China. And nobody likes that game. The players hate it. The coaches hate it. The fans who right. go to the game hate it. The fans who watch on TV hate it. I mean, it, it's for nobody in Italy. So I, uh, I would just draw that, that further line of distinction. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you could say across all sports globally, fans would have an argument that they get ignored. Like they're the last person who's ever considered. But the fact is that TV money and, and, and digital money at this point too, with platforms like Amazon and streaming services drives everything. And it's, you know, th those leagues are just trying to make as much money as possible. Then it gets d divvied up amongst all the teams who can then use that revenue to buy players and invest in their team. So it's, uh, you know, I get Klopp's complaint to a point, but it's gotten so, he's gotten so obsessed about it. I think it's like, it's become a distraction, frankly. Um, but I, but I, I thought Rory brought up some very good points. And the fact is that the fans are really paying, you know, they're, they're paying into it. They're paying to get a lot of this content. And, right. um, and they're not really being taken into account. But I, again, Sam, you would know about Syrian stuff. I just think this compressed schedule, you know, in this world of COVID happens everywhere. So mm -hmm. every coach could potentially have a gripe because mm -hmm. what coach wants their team to be playing, you know, two, three games, six days apart. I mean, that's just the you way want the money, But you don't want to play all the games. So it's a, it's a, and definitely yeah. more injuries. I mean, you know, the stats bear it out. There have definitely been more muscle injuries and player fatigue. You talk, you talk about it funny with, you know, players looking tired and, you know, and, and, but everybody is dealing with the same thing and, and the big teams get away with it more because they have more depth. Right. Right. Which is Liverpool, which is funny how they complain so much because they have, you know, if the guy sitting on the bench right now or, you know, injured or would, would, be a, a great World Cup team. For yeah, most teams, if they had the injury woes that Liverpool had, would not even be competitive at this right. point. Liverpool's, you know, four in fourth place. They're maybe six points back with a game in hand. So they're definitely not playing up to their usual style. But, you know, they have an academy that has great players, right? So they're right. able to bring them up. 
All right. So um, today, big uh, MLS super draft. I think uh, we could talk to our guest, Dominic, about that. That would be interesting to get his perspective uh, as a coach, you know, because we're all proponents of the, you know, the college game and mm -hmm. how it's been sort of marginalized, I think, um, by the NCAA. And uh, so uh, let's talk to Dom about that. But, um, you know, boy, as a college kid, you must be so excited about a draft. I mean, it was, uh, you know, something you'd looked forward to, trained for for four years. And, you know, is it something that's really part of their plans as a team? Well, think about it too, Flinny. The pressures with expansion in the league and teams wanting to be good as quickly as possible. If you're a new team, you're Austin FC or somebody like that. Right. You know, you want to be good right away. And you're probably less inclined to take a, a gamble on a college player. You want to go with more of a proven commodity. So I, I, I think all, yeah, I just think all of it feeds into it. And it's and it's too bad because they're probably missing some great college players. Well, you know, and this is the thing where, you know, I've talked about this before, the, a lot of the guys on the under twenties never make the full national team, even though they're exposed to the, the best coaching and the you know best training facilities and everything. So there's always that diamond in the rough element to college. You, you pick a good athlete, a coachable kid, whatever it is. So you basically take on a project, a kid who's not MLS ready, but you can maybe get him there. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, again, we'll, we'll talk to Dominic about that. Cause that's probably what the big part of coaching is now uh, Dominic is not with the galaxy. They hired Greg Vanny, as I said, in the opening, but there's been a lot of coaching changes here, mostly um, foreign guys. Uh, we have um, the Argentine Hernan Lasada, the head coach. He's 38 years old. Um, the only MLS coach under 40. Uh, he's been coaching in the Belgium club uh, beer shot. I love that one. <laughs> Don't you love beer that? That's like a college name for a team. <laughs> beer shot. And, uh, <laughs> So he, he utilizes a really high energy style of play, which seems to be in vogue right now because of um, because of Liverpool, perhaps. Um, yeah. And this is interesting to me. Phil Neville officially becomes the inner Miami coach. You know, I got to tell you guys, I think there's an element of uh, the old NASL stories about, you know, guys coming over here and wanting to hang out and, and enjoying America. Um, and they all love Miami. I think there's a reason why Beckham. Beckham well, and, and let's, you know, yeah. I mean, Beckham was Phil Neville's teammate. They came up through the Academy together in Man United. They've known each other since they were 15. So, I mean, that's not a great surprise really. Right. If you do that. And then, and then they got Chris Henderson as the uh, chief soccer officer. I Obviously, think they yeah. got him from uh, Seattle. So inter, inter Miami is putting some pretty impressive people in place there. I think, I, I think right. they're, and they played, I think that team did well towards the end of uh, last season. So they seem to be on the ascent. Uh, Chris Anderson, a great guy. I knew yeah. him back in 94 and uh, very likable friends of Dominic Kinnear actually. Um, so uh, yeah, he's done a great job. 13 years as GM Seattle yeah. Sounders. That surprised me, man. The years just add up yeah. quickly. Um, I want to go back uh, to a moment to Weston McKinney. He played a full 90, didn't he, Sam? Yeah. So the, the aforementioned game, I, mentioned um the uh, <laughs> the italian supercopa uh super cup which they juve won 2-0 yesterday against napoli and he did play the full uh, 90 minutes and uh, for me he played very well um the yeah. penalty he gave away would have been pretty unfortunate had napoli uh scored they did not they uh insigne missed the net with the shot but otherwise he played a really good game and he was out for uh, a little bit because he got injured two games ago and then just came on as a sub the last game. And so it's really notable when he's not in there. Um, he really brings a lot to that team. So uh, that's fantastic. It's been that's good to see. Yeah. Here. You have a little super league news. Uh, yeah. Super league. I thought this was interesting this morning. FIFA put out a statement basically saying that any players who are part of a super league in future will uh, not be able to play in, you know, FIFA competitions, which basically means they won't be allowed to play in the world cup, which is a pretty strong statement. Uh, I, maybe they're trying to just nip the super league in the bud and I guess we'll see how it all plays out, but it seems to be yeah. the strongest anti super league statement I've seen yet. This falls right into your sort of uh, sphere, uh, Grail. It's follow the money, protect the brand, basically. Yeah, and I could see legal challenges to this. I mean, it's just interesting where FIFA chooses to flex their muscles. You know, they ignore so many things that are so corrupt, frankly, okay. and then they get bent out of shape because somebody's going to be dipping into their revenue stream. So they, you know, they just go Neat. crazy. And it's like, where's the consistency? Come on. All right. Uh, Messi got that red card. A lot of people talking about that. I, I don't know. I thought it was kind of harsh. Didn't you guys? 
Yeah, I just thought it was interesting, you know, looking at the stats that it was his first red card in 753 games for Barca. And again, for a guy that gets physically like oh, assaulted as, as yeah. much as he does, I think, I mean, not not the way Maradona did back in the day, just because right. they protect players a lot more. But right. but Messi gets hacked, you know, a fair amount because of the, the style he plays. But yeah, I just thought it was really, I, I thought it was actually commendable that that's the, the uh, first Only one he's had in yeah. many games, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, he, and he does, he takes a beating. So, but I, I think Messi getting a red card would be like Gretzky dropping the gloves and getting in a fight back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a great player. People, you know, players protect him. Sergio Ramos has uh, taken a target practice at Messi a few times, but uh, he's had well, a lot so of. I think Ramos has had like 12 or something in his career. Ramos has like a staggering number of red cards. God, you know, and he probably could have another 12. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what he did to Salah. So, yeah. uh, U.S. Women's National Team, they cruised past Colombia 4-0. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 tough game. to even gauge because Colombia was so horrific. I mean, honestly, it was like an under-12 team out there. They, they, they couldn't even connect a couple passes together. So it's hard. You know, Sam Mewis scored a hat-trick, so that was good. But the thing I was really interested in was Katarina Marcario, who's the, obviously the highly touted Herman two-time Herman award winner from Stanford. So she got to play the second half. I, I want to see her playing striker. They had her Lloyd, they had up top. So she was kind of adrift in the midfield. And it was, it was tough for me to see what we have with her because yeah. I don't think she was really in the right position, but at least she got her feet wet and uh, she's an imposing looking player. I can tell you that she's got, I just tell she's you, got I some size on her. One more competition because you have these soccer playing nations that don't have any tradition of women playing soccer in these countries. So you think a Columbia matchup is going to be great with well-skilled players and they're not because women are just being exposed to sports yeah. in a country like Columbia. So it's sort of, you know, people would always say, well, why are the women supposed to win the world cup? And I'm like, well, because I think our women have a, a better head start here and rightly so. But um, I think it's starting to, it's starting to be, there's starting to be a little more parity, especially with the European. Oh teams. yeah. The European and, teams uh, are, are really fact, solid. And in fact, skill wise are, are sort of surpassing the United States. And we don't want to get caught in that uh, fast running athletic bubble that we've always been in when you talk yeah, about so we play, we play them again, uh, Columbia again, I think tomorrow night. So there's like almost like two straight games. Uh, I, I just hope Mercario gets, you know, some real time up top. Yeah, because Carly Lloyd looked fine. Rapino looked out unfit to me, but she hasn't really played in a year. So um, right, and I was she's been on a PR tour basically. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, so we have Dominic. So I want to um, just talk a little bit about, about EPL and then get to Dom. Um, but uh, boy, thinking about your Chelsea, we talked about it last week on the show. Frank Lampard, uh, that would be that would be tough for for fans, Chelsea fans. You don't even give them. No, I know. It's just, it's, it's what makes being a Chelsea fan just kind of annoying because Abramovich, you know, just fires coaches on a whim. And, um, you know, they lost 2-0 to Leicester. Um, I know, Sam, you want to talk a little bit about Leicester. Leicester's playing great. You know, they're in, I think they're in second place now. Um, but, uh, yeah, they just, you know, they got outplayed. Chelsea got outplayed. They, they, it's not clicking. Um but again, I would like the owner to come out and say, look, we're going to give Frank through the end of the season and then we'll reevaluate and just right. let, let them play. It's also a lot of pressure on the player when you yeah. think your coach might be fired. I think. I mean, so I don't think any of that's helping their play. Put it that way. How long has Lampard been there now? This is his second season. Second I'm, season, I'm, yeah. So I mean, got him, got him into top four. He got him into top four with a very young mm -hmm. team. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think they were developing well, look, I mean, I, I, they have not been playing well the last se seven, eight games. So, I mean, I'm mm -hmm. not defending how they've been playing, but again, I'd like to see how some of these pieces can fit together and give them a little bit more time to sort it out. Cause a lot of time, big players come to teams and they just don't fit in right away. You know, Drogba wasn't immediately good for Chelsea. So mm -hmm. Right, right. Anyway, well, yeah, I, I, I find it. I find it kind of an interesting parallel with Pirlo at Juve, who are not doing well either. They're in fifth place. They lost badly this past weekend to Inter, two zero. Uh, they did win the Super Cup, but I find it interesting that Sadi preceded both Pirlo and uh, right. Lampard at Chelsea. And 
as a defender of Saudi, I have to say, I don't think he would have lasted as long as either of these two guys. So it's very clear how, you know, public image and club legend, everything. Um, Totally fair statement, Sam. I mean, Frank's a Chelsea legend. So does he get longer? Yeah, yeah, he does get longer, but he's also much much better communicator. If nothing else, I find Frank to be very candid and uh, open when he's doing the post games. And and sorry, just was totally uncommunicative. I mean, I'd never, you know, again, I don't know if that's the language barrier or whatever it is. Um, But you're, you're, you're correct. I mean, he is given a little bit of a longer leash, Frank, but again, I, I'd like I'd like him to be given a little bit longer to see what he can do. And then if it, it doesn't work out, you can replace him. Yeah. You know, um, talking about Leicester, Sam, uh, mm-hmm. Brendan Rodgers, you know, journeyman uh, for his days at Liverpool and he's gone on. This is some good success for him. Yeah. Well, I I've seen seen his name mentioned with the Chelsea job, which I thought yeah. was curious. Because he's but, an um, ex Chelsea guy. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, you know, I sort of tune into the Premier League very, very rarely, but I, I'm pretty impressed to see how Leicester City, they finished fifth last year. They're in second place right now. I mean, you know, obviously them winning the championship was this like fairy tale moment, you know, once in a lifetime kind of thing. But to me, it's almost more impressive that they've managed to, you know, put together some st- uh, sustained success. I know they had a couple like barren seasons after, but you know, they're a team that hasn't had, as far as I'm, as far as I know, like a major cash injection. I think their wage bill is ninth in the Premier League, so they're right around the, the middle of the table. And yet, they continue to overachieve and kind of be in the conversation. Yeah, they've actually sold big players, Sam. You know, they got the yeah. Drinkwater left. They sold Rio Mares to Man City. They sold Ben Chilwell to Chelsea. So they've actually lost some of their best players. Mm-hmm. And Rodgers has done a great job. They they just totally outplayed Chelsea. I mean, they were just bad. They were so much better than Chelsea. And it was like every player knew exactly what Brendan Rodgers wanted him to do. And they, they, man, they work, they work for 90 minutes. And Chelsea was just kind of asleep, basically. Liverpool continues to struggle. Uh, They, you know, they dominated possession, but who cares, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not putting the ball in the back of the net and uh, Man United, you know, it's interesting talking about Manchester United in that game. And it was a boring snoozer. Uh, Grail, it was a, quite a disappointment for my morning here on the West Coast. I thought it was just a great way to start off my day. Um, but are you guys surprised with all the criticism uh, Ole's gotten and, and Manchester United? They're at the top of the table. Yeah, I, I, I think that the criticism is, again, is quieting a little bit because they're realizing that he's actually done a pretty good job. And, yeah. uh, and Pogba's playing better. I've got to say, he scored a cracking goal yesterday against Fulham. Just a spectacular. On both, on both sides of the ball, just I a, thought. Just a bullet. Better. He's playing better. It makes a big difference. You just never know with Pogba, though, like what mood he's going to be in on any given day. I feel like he's just one of those very mercurial players. But, um, yeah, they, they're they better than I thought they would be this year. I don't know if they're going to be able to hold on. I still think, you know, we talked to John Champion about this. I still think it's not out of the question for a Leicester or an Aston Villa or an Everton like a dark horse to win it this year I just yeah there's, there's quite a race going Man, on Man City's the team to beat though based on pre, you know the last six seven weeks nobody's playing better than City they're not conceding goals they're not even scoring goals with their number nine but they're winning games two nil three nil they're just really playing good solid soccer. and I don't I, I would not discount Liverpool some of these guys are going to come off of injury um, I also think what I was watching with them is it seems like they were all sort of playing like Firmino up front, uh, Salah and Mane, basically all trying to set each other up for a goal instead of that killer instinct of just go for yeah. goal. You know, they're all trying to get each other out of a funk and no one's taking the responsibility. That's so it. Like, but you know, Flinny, you know, you and Sam know because you guys played the game. Um, confidence is an yeah. incredible thing. And when you don't have confidence, you want somebody else to take the chance, right? It's like a hot potato. It's yeah. like, if you're not feeling, you know, just it's, it's instinctive and automatic when you're playing well and you're finishing, you just shoot, right? It, it started to remind me of those Arsenal teams that would dominate possession, look yeah. great on the ball, but they'd get to that, that attacking third of the field and they'd have nothing. It was an impenetrable, you know, wall and, you know, an Arsene Banger team that had all the possession and they weren't winning. And that's kind of what I'm starting to feel like. I mean, they haven't scored a goal in the last three games, funny in the last three Premier League games. That's like, when you those have, guys that, up front, you have that front three, that's really disturbing. So, so speaking of Arsenal, uh, Sam Ozil 
is gone. Did that surprise you? Uh, not really. I mean, if a long anything, time it, coming, man. Yeah. Oh, dangling God. in the wind. Yeah. If anything, it's took longer than I thought it might. Um, but I, it's kind of a feel good move. This is apparently his, you know, boyhood club, as people say, the team he grew up supporting. And I, I hope it works out for him. So I mean, he's, he's, he's only yeah. 30, I mean, 32, I guess that's kind of old for a soccer player, but I think yeah, he's three, got three years left. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. And, yeah. Um, Turkish league, I, it's certainly not as demanding as the premier league physically. Um, taking nothing away from the league, but uh, I, I hope it works out. I mean, I think he's due for kind of a, a stroke of good luck and to feel like he's, he's in the right place. I mean, I know he's brought a lot on himself with his attitude sometimes, but um, yeah. I don't know when he's at his best, he's a, a player I really enjoy watching. So I, I hope it ha- happens for him here. Grail. I'm with you. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, you know, I think he's a somewhat misunderstood guy because of his, especially in the premier league, right? Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of xenophobia in, in England too. And it's easy to pick on the foreign guys. Um, and I, he's brought some of it on himself because he can just give that appearance so that he doesn't give a shit. Um, yeah. It's also the way he plays. I mean, there are plenty of people who play in professional soccer who don't look like they give a, you know what, and they're, <laughs> they're good players. And I think in the right situation, he could again, become a good player. I think, you know, I think it's more that grail than him being a foreigner because obviously the, the Premier League is filled with them. I thought what he really got criticized for was how he looked, his yeah. style of play. And when you broke down touches, positive touches, yeah. assists, uh, things that led to a goal, he was, a, he was fantastic. But I always felt in the Premier League it wasn't always a good fit because – he didn't, you know, get stuck forward, not going to mix. It wasn't, didn't look like he was hustling. Yeah. And, you know, we've all played with those players who they're maybe they play a little smarter and they're, they're playing a sort of skillful touch game. And that just doesn't, with the fans, especially if you're losing the team, they don't want to see that. But he, I, think, I mean, yeah. he's been, at the height of his criticism, you know, he had played well in the, in the World Cup. He had played well, you know, the, in the Premier League. Arsenal, it was like, and they were still criticizing him just because he wasn't getting stuck I also in. think he became just like the symbol of Arsenal's decline. You know, it's yeah, very right. easy to just say like, you know. Exactly. Um, put That's it all true. in one guy. And, and, wor- so. and work rate, there's such a premium on work rate in the game now. You know, e- you know, and the best players on Liverpool and Man City work their tails off, right? So if you're not doing that, it's easy for fans to say, look, he's not chasing. You know, which he didn't. I mean, to be fair, there were plenty of times I'd see Urzel lose a ball and not chase a guy. Right. And that would be maddening to me as an you know, as a player. Like, like, why are you you just lost the ball? Go chase the guy. Yeah, but then there's the conversely, you have someone like Messi who coaches would tell him, you know, don't pace yourself, exactly. don't chase because we need you to score goals. So I don't know. Yes. So yeah. let's let we'll get a greater soccer mind on here and we'll talk yeah. to him about it. But uh, yeah. so let's take a break here. When we come back on over the ball, we'll be talking to uh, the coaching legend, I believe, and still in the game very much. So Dominic Kinnear will be our guest You're listening to over the ball. Over the ball is brought to you by soccer America. Go to socceramerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And buy Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, a friend of the show, a friend of mine for a long, long time when he was a, uh, a player in the national team. Now, one of the winningest head coaches in MLS history. Interesting for me to watch this all play out because, you know, for m- many people were talking about uh, our next guest as one of the, um, the next U.S. men's national team coaches. And now here he is. He's actually looking for a job. So I don't think that's going to be a long job search. Joining us now on Over the Ball, Mr. Dominic Kinnear. Dom, how are you, pal? I'm doing good, Kevin. How are you? Nice to see you. Yeah, you know, so like, you know, job security, like, it's funny. Uh, I, I was thinking about it, you know, with with sort of stand-up comedy, I got to work gig to gig, but I, I put things out there for a couple of months at a time. Uh, with I was thinking about it as a player, I guess, it's the only perspective I had, is you always had to be in the coach's good graces. Uh, and when a new coach would come in, it was, everything started all over again. But what is it like to be the coach now? Um, one that's so highly respected, you know, in the, in the country. And yet you're out of a job, basically. It's, it's interesting. You have a family, you have kids going to college. It's what's it like? Yeah. Well, the, the good thing is I'm under contract for 2021. So the financial part of it, um, for the next 12 months or 11 and a half months is, is okay. Um, yeah. 
but that doesn't make you feel any better. I mean, it's good every two weeks when you get the check, but it's, it's numbers and paying bills, but the fulfillment of being able to go out in the field, uh, it's not there, but it's, it's only been about three days. You know, my last meeting with uh, Chris Klein and, and uh, Dennis DeClosa was just kind of, Hey, thank you very much. You know, respect everything you've done with us. Uh, but to go back a little bit, you know, I did do the interim with uh, the galaxy to end the season. And then at the end of the year, I did interview for the job. Um, obviously, you know, when Greg Danny resigned from Toronto, I'm sure one thought, well, he's not leaving a good job and a good position, good club to not do anything. So I think we all had our, our, our thoughts on, okay, where's he going next? And there's quite a few jobs available in, uh, in MLS. And one of those was the galaxy, you know? So when, um, you know, and it, it was, it was, I thought for me, you know, I got good communication from Chris and from Dennis who let me know just around Christmas time, uh, that. I, they were going to talk to Greg. He was their main guy. And I figured that was the way it was going to go. And then once he was announced, I had a conversation with Greg and just said, look, just give it to me one of two ways. If you want me to stay, I'd love to help you. If you don't want me to stay, I completely understand. And he said he wants to bring in his own guys, which in the end, completely understandable. And I probably would do the same thing if I was him. So yeah. a bit of a bummer. I really enjoyed, you know, being down there, enjoyed the club and the people that I worked with. Um, but that wasn't the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, I wish them well. Well, you take your experiences elsewhere as, as you move along. And, you know, part of the, the whole thing you go up against is when a coach is let go. Yeah, you're, you're sort of the interim coach for a while. You're just sort of plugging holes and trying to implement. But it's not really your infrastructure. It's been another coach's infrastructure. There's, there's a big part of that whole fresh coach idea, bringing completely new people, starting new. Um, you know, you, you even see it in the Premier League with when they bring in Sam Allardyce, you know, at the like at the last minute just to, to throw him in there because just the change itself can maybe, you know, uh, raise the tides a little bit. So, I mean, you'll probably get the same opportunity somewhere to go in and, and you bring your staff uh, there. Do you, you know, I, I, we were th- talking about it before you actually got on. Is there a feeling of like sort of would you ever do something like coach a college team because there's sort of so much more job security there you don't you don't really move you know you could stay for 10 years at a, at a certain place um have you ever thought of, of something like that i mean you know and, and again you're saying um you know you're getting your paycheck but someone like you has followed his passions which is soccer and it's not about the money per se certainly when you're raising a family but you want to be out there coaching right you do and as far as the college gig goes i mean most of the time i think most universities especially state and, and um require some type of educational degree. Um, I don't fall into that category. So I went pretty much straight from, you know, high school to one year in, at uh, Hartwick. And then I kind of bounced around community college trying to figure out what I was trying to do. And then along the way, um, I became a professional soccer player. So education took a back seat. Um, and so right now that avenue for me, unless I were to get involved in some, uh, you know, like a private school, like, I, you know, you, you remember Brian yeah. Quinn, you know, Brian Quinn, who was playing with the national team same time I was, he's the head coach of USD, University of San Diego. It's a private school. Um, I know for a fact, I, I have a more extensive education than Brian does. Brian, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was an assistant there with, um, with Seamus. I can't remember Seamus' last name, but Seamus was at USD for years. And Brian was assistant for years. And then when Seamus yeah. retired, Brian took the head coach job. So it's got to be a perfect situation like that. Um, as I really thought about it too much, I'm a little bit maybe old in the game to start at a college as well, but you never know. Um, but me, it's, I'm just kind of looking around and I love MLS, love being involved in it. And hopefully something uh, pops up pretty soon. Well, you've only had three days to consider your future. Yeah. I've had 45 years and I'm still not figuring it out. So. <laughs> Sam, you have a question? Yeah, Dom, uh, great to see you again. Um, i curious about the education thing you just mentioned and uh, as a young former soccer player myself. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the coaching pathway looks like for aspiring coaches, um, what recommendations you might have for someone looking to get involved and on a you know more global note, how you rate our ability in the U.S. to train good young coaches. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny you say that because when I don't, MLS is kind of my avenue. It's, it's really taken a turn to the left-hand side with foreigners, you know, recent now. I mean, anyway, like you look at the jobs that were available now and, and okay. And Greg came to, uh, to LA, Chris Armas has gone to Toronto, but then you look at the others and already Gabriel Heinze is in Atlanta. Uh, and I can't just, uh, is it Lozano is the, the guy who's just been in Lozada. 
Yeah. Lozano has just been named the head coach in DC. Uh, uh, Neville has just been named the coach in, uh, in inter Miami. Um, so it, the real, the trend, and, and I think Tata Martino and his success really kind of kicked that into gear. You know, a lot of foreign coaches are, are starting to come here now. Um, and I think it was funny a, a while back, I think it was Javier Aguirre had said that, Oh, I'd love to coach an MLS. You can lose 10 games in a row and still keep your job, you know, because <laughs> the pressure is not exactly there. So it's, it's a bit unfortunate that, um, you know, may, the Americans are not exactly getting the jobs right away. It's kind of going to somewhere else. And I think that's also a little bit of the, the public pressure as well. Um, everyone thinks that, you know, this, this, this gentleman from beer shop coming to DC is, is a worthy risk. Um, and I think he gets a little bit of um, maybe a, a little bit of time and patience that maybe an American coach wouldn't get. But to go, to go back to your, your question, Sam, sorry, um, is um, you know, the, the pathway for me is obviously, you know, starting at the ODP level or a, a, a team's academy and, and the young and then trying to move your way up. Um, and obviously, a lot of times it's not what you know, it can be who you know. Um, and that's how actually I got involved in the coaching. My, I went straight from playing into coaching because I was friends with Frank Yallop and Frank Yallop had a job in San Jose and he, he needed an assistant and he asked me, I had no coaching experience whatsoever. Um, and it was only because of Frank that I kind of took my path into the professional ranks. At the time, I just wanted to become a youth coach in my hometown and just kind of take my playing experience and try to learn as I go. So I think it's one of those where, you know, you, you got to start small and obviously if you have uh, great ambitions, I think you take every chance that you can. And now I, I honestly think that you have to be really, really flexible as far as moving um, because, you know, it's not one place you can just kind of stay. It's like, hey, if there's a job in Seattle, their academy, I think you need to take the chance to go up there. Or if there's a job in Salt Lake's academy or in Arizona, I think you have to kind of take that opportunity. Um, so sometimes the family stuff, <clears throat> I think especially now, uh, needs to take a backseat for, for your ambitions. And if you want to become a professional coach, you have to kind of tie yourself to maybe a certain style or a certain coach and, and try to, you know, gather yourself around people who can maybe, you know, help you. Like I said, what, who, you know, uh, sometimes helps, you know, can get a little bit farther than what, you know. Right. Well, you're given the opportunity with who, you know, and then you kind of, kind of do it once you're, you're correct there, in your situation. Right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Tom. It's always great having you on. Um, when you do land a job and obviously we know that's going to happen sooner rather than later, just stylistically, um, are you thinking ahead in terms of what you want to bring to that, uh, that, that job from just a playing style standpoint, or are you, do you wait till you get into a place to evaluate the, the talent and then kind of, you know, take the talent and apply it to the style? I'm just curious how that generally works when you go from one place to another. Well, I think it's a combination of the two, but first you have to get the job. Yeah. And sometimes no, I, well, you, you know, you, you have to kind of sell your ideas to the people that you're interviewing with, you know, and I, I've been, uh, I interviewed for Cincinnati last year. Um, also, and obviously the, the job went to Yapstam and then I've interviewed now with LA, uh, with this time. So, and going into the interview, um, it's not just, Hey, how you doing? Hi, I'm Dominic Kinnear. Um, remember me and give me the job. It's almost like you have to kind of sell your, your ideas, the way you'd want to play. Uh, with also with the look at the personnel and I did this the, the thing with my with Cincinnati was before I went in for the interview I went to I went three four games back and just kind of went and looked at how they played and I said okay this is how I would play with your team mm -hmm. now along the way it's like hey these are my ideas sometimes you do have to be a little bit flexible and either be a little bit more conservative or a little bit more aggressive considering what talent you have on display um, but I don't think you can go away from your want to say your core principles, your core ideas, philosophy, DNA, culture are three words that are getting tossed about. Like, you know, it's a, uh, you know, you're at a little Wayne concert, chucking a hundred dollar bills in the air or something like that, you know? So it's, it's getting a little bit, uh, a little bit easy to use those words. And I understand the meaning behind them, but I, I, I do think that, yes, you have to go in with your ideas because not only are you selling yourself as a person, but you're selling yourself as a coach and those ideas uh, have to be at the forefront of what you're talking about. Yeah. So is, is that just uh, following up? Is that leadership component really uh, important just in terms of what your view is of the the head coach in terms of how you lead people? Is that a big it, part of it? It is. But I, I also think that for me, leadership is more of an activity than it is a 
you know, a word on the, on, you know, on a piece of paper, on a, on a, on a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I think it's how, how you lead the group, how you lead your staff, um, how, you know, honestly, how you lead yourself when you walk into the building. You know, it's kind of funny. I was, I was talking to this one. I was talking to a neighbor just the other day and he was moving all kinds of granite and all this like blocks, cement blocks in his backyard. And I was helping him move. And so he's asking me questions about, you know, hey, what's what's about your coaching style and stuff? And I said, it's kind of funny that the, the one thing I've been kind of pigeonholed in is I have, I'm a 4-4-2 coach, which really drives me crazy because when you look back to my last couple of years and all my years in San Jose, we played a 4-3-3. But the personnel kind of was like, well, you're playing with two forwards. And I said, well, I'm playing with a deep line forward who kind of plays as the 10. But almost people couldn't get around the fact that, no, no, you're a 4-4-2 coach. That's the way you are. We know that. And it was almost like I was bashing my head against the wall saying, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. You know, and even in L.A. the first time, I had Ibrahimovic up high and Ola Kamara underneath because I knew he could run. Now, is he a playmaker? Absolutely not. We know that. But he's a play finisher that can get into the box, which I think an attacking midfielder needs to do. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I saw was, oh, Kinnear's rolling out his 4-4-2 again. And I told the guy, I said, no, I'm not. I'm playing a 4-3-3. But it, it just couldn't shake it, you know. But um, ah, just sometimes you get pigeonholed. And like I said, if you look back at what I've done, uh, I've been flexible enough to, to, to move my lineups and my formations around trying to adjust to the, to, to the team you're playing against also, but also mm-hmm. to the, the talent that you have. That's such, you know, it's so funny that, that how the game is actually played and then the rigid thoughts of people looking from the outside – uh, in you know, for a long time we saw Tiki Taka with Barcelona, and everybody tried to play that way. And then it seems like now the uh, you know the, the play style du jour is sort of Liverpool outside backs, you know, shooting forward, you know, high, high press. Do you do you feel that uh, sort of um, things come and go uh, in the game where people want you to impose a certain style just because it seems to be the hot style at the time? Yes, and then Bayern Munich always becomes the best team. Yeah, of course. So just be like Bayern, Dom. That's it. That's a simple task. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does. um, I think it does have a lot to do with, you know, the culture, your playing style. I mean, Pep Guardiola, you know, uh, Barcelona changed everybody, global thought on how the game should be played. Now, everybody wants to build from the back and make 75 passes before you get a shot on goal. It's, it's, it's a great, it's great to watch, but, um, not always. I, I like, not always. Not always. Yeah. And then when, when when I think when Bayern Munich beat them, what five nothing or was it seven? Was it ten ten to one seven, over two seven, legs? Seven or eight. That I remember somebody somebody called me like about half an hour later, just on a random call, and this guy was a huge Barcelona fan, and he was always pressing about Barcelona this, and I just and he picked the phone. And I said, "Are you coming to tell me that your teams are going to start playing like Bayern Munich now?" You know. <laughs> so. It really is, you know, and, and and that's why we love and hate the Germans all at the same time because their style, although it may change, they are their principles of just wanting to, you know, crush you and continue to crush you throughout the game never goes away. Um, so yeah, I mean, MLS has had that where it was a four four two league, then it was a three five two league with Steve Nichol. He did it with the New England Revolution, four four two early on. Then you know, Peter Vermees really I thought changed a lot of thinking. And MLS, when he came out with this high-pressing 4-3-3, he was the first guy to really do it, you know, and everyone kind of took a took a, a leadership from that and it hasn't gone away. But, I mean, when you look at it, and now Liverpool, is, is even though they're, they're second, third in the league, they're struggling a little bit because, you know, that first year when they won the league, I mean, they didn't have any injuries. Everyone was playing well. Mm-hmm. It, was like the, it was like the dream season. Now Van Dyke's out. Now you have maybe a little bit, and they talk about the, the three forwards aren't firing on all cylinders. So it, it does take away from the effectiveness. Um, and it'd be interesting to see what Klopp does. Does he continue to, to really, really press these guys, or does he kind of change his approach to maybe uh, maybe play a little bit? Because they, they never have space in behind anymore because everyone knows mm-hmm. how explosive they are. So are they going to change their approach to maybe kind of uh, be defensively less aggressive so they can be a little bit more explosive going forward? It's interesting. But, yeah, there's, there's trends all the time, and it continues. It, it always continues. That brings up an interesting point. I want to ask you this, Dominic, as a person, because you're sort of a player's coach. Players love to play for you. So uh, to, keep in them, to keep them motivated, you know, look at like Alexander Arnold at Liverpool. He just looks tired and, and beat up a little bit. And he's not injured, right? It's sort of this emotional drain. You're playing this high press thing. They're, you know, they're crossing balls from the length of the field. And, and he just seems uninspired right now. How do you sort of keep players going? Because I know, you know, I had a, um, a dinner once with um, – head coach of Kentucky, John Calipari. And he said when he was in the pros, 
you said, uh, you know, college kids are easier to motivate. You're kind of controlling their lives a lot, but with the pros, they're making millions of dollars. They're making more than you generally. And he goes, you can yell at them maybe twice a year. That's a bit to kind of motivate them. So, so how do you keep players motivated, focused on the, the task at hand? Yeah, it's a good question, especially now. Um, like you said, players make a heck of a lot more than you. And player power sometimes overrules power between the boardroom and the coach. Right. You know, and it's one of those like, okay, we can get rid of one guy uh, to motivate or to inspire the three, four guys we really need to keep going. Um, I think it's more, that's more of a management issue than anything. Yeah. And I think the thing is, like, uh, I've always been pretty lucky that I've had pretty good guys, but I've always tried to build relationships uh, with them, always letting them know that uh, the personal relationship is, is, is parallel and sometimes more important than the professional relationship. You know, so the first thing you do is I think you always have to kind of keep players engaged. You always have to ask them about their families, about getting, you know, you have to kind of get to know their moms and dads because they, in the end, they're still, they're still kids. They're still young men. And I still think they want the attention um, from somebody in, 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 a, in a position of authority that lets them know how important they are. You know, so, I mean, I was lucky enough as an assistant coach, it's a heck of a lot easier than as a head coach because you're not bringing a guy in and telling him he's being dropped. You know, yeah. but the first I can I can I'll go back. And I'm going to name drop here. But Ibrahimovic and I got along wonderful because the first thing I said to him was I was a huge fan of Henrik Larson. Right. Because he played for my team, played for Celtic. Yeah. And I always knew that Ibrahimovic's favorite teammate was Henrik Larson. So when he came to the locker room and he is this larger than life personality and he's kind of hard to kind of get to, especially the first week, everyone's like, wow, this is really quite the scene this guy's walking in our locker room and, <laughs> and so he's big uh, and imposing and, and he's big and he's wanting he's actually a great player and we all know the rest but uh and all of a sudden i just kind of said to him i said hey have you ever played at salted park and he said i played there once with ajax and i said the european nights there are incredible and he was like yeah he goes i couldn't even hear myself talking to the teammate next to me and so he's like why do you care about celtic and i told him i said oh henry Lars is my favorite player so it kind of was like a little bit of an avenue into his interest level you know yeah. and then you kind of take it from there but i think um to show that you care not only about the player uh, that's in the locker room, but also his background, maybe his uh, his playing career past where you maybe have played against his old club or his old country. And I think you kind of show that, that you know, you're kind of not I'm player, you're coach, but you're kind of in this together a little a little bit right. and to try and build a personal relationship. So during practices or during the games, when you mention things like, hey, I just need five more percent from you. I think there's a better and a stronger connection than just say, Hey, this is the way we're playing. Go out and do, and do the job. I think you see that from a lot of top coaches Klopp. I mean, all the players come off the field and they hug him. So something, something really good is going on there, mm -hmm. you know? So, and I think that's why he's getting that extra 10% at, at times that the team needs. As I said, you know, I think we talked about this last time where a, a good coach basically has to act as a psychiatrist. And I think that's one of the things that's, you know, because you're, you're motivating different players in different ways because every kid is different. And I think sometimes the old coaching mentality used to be, I have this system, I will impose it on you and you got to figure out how to deal. Now you're looking at each guy and go, oh, he doesn't quite fit in with that. I, let me motivate him this way. And and so that's, that's where I think like someone like you watch a, a Mourinho, he's having some luck this year, but where... I think uh, you know he's to blame the players for certain things that are happening publicly. And wow, I mean, I used to think like as a player, your confidence, especially playing soccer, it's like it's it's everything. You know, your confidence yeah. on the ball, your decision making, and when the coach is publicly, you know, at the post interview saying, "Wow, he played like crap," and uh, I'm not sure if he'll still be here. I'm like, oh my god, the guys in the locker room are already beating themselves up. You know, then you then you have that. Um, you know, it brings an, an interesting point. I wanted to ask you. I know. You get someone like you, you've played in the national team, then you get under Yallop, you start to coach and, um, you know, you're, you're with the pros. These guys are pretty much three quarters baked as far as how they are as players and things. And you come in and try to manage them. There's been a big school of thought where players like yourself or former players, great coaches, they should be coaching the younger players to have them develop, you know, better skills and things. When you really can mold them, that, that 12 to 16 year old uh, where someone a kid like that would benefit so much from all your knowledge. Um, is there ever a, th a thought to move some of the, the great coaching minds into to areas like that? Well, that's, that's the first time I've heard that. I don't, I don't know if people want to do it, but can I say one thing to go back to that last little question was when you, when you speak about Frank Gallup, I'll always go back to this. And this was Frank's like foundation for his treatment of players. And I always took it where we went was he always said, when a player walks through that, I may have mentioned on this show before, 
he would always say, when a player walks through that door into your office, you have to remember that's somebody's son. And he goes, wow. now put, he goes, put your son in that position of that kid and how you would want your son to be treated by that coach. And he would, he always said, he goes, that's how I want to treat that player. As if that's some, as if that's my son coming through the door, he goes, sometimes you have to be honest, but firm, but giving them the honest version of how you feel is the most important. And I was completely blown away because I, mm -hmm. you know, I had so I had some older coaches who, you know, you know, it was their way or no way at all, you know? Right. And when he said that, I was like, wow. And then when he had his first meeting, couple meetings with the, uh, the players was completely blown away with how much the players then just wanted to play for Frank and wanted to be around mm -hmm. Frank and wanted to, to train. And I always have taken that. And every time I have a staff meeting, when I was a coach, I would say, hey, we have to treat even the, the trainer, the, uh, the the equipment manager. I would all say, hey, that's, that's somebody's son. You have to treat him like he's your son. You know, and I think that really kind of goes a long way to kind of building a good family culture within the confines of the locker room, which, as you know, can be such a fragile place at times, you know. But to go on to that, yeah, I, I haven't really thought about that too much. I think that's uh, to go back to Sam's question about when you're, when you're building your way up to be a uh, professional coach, because I think everybody wants to coach to be the best. Um, and then and on top of that, you want to coach the best. So, I mean, if you were to yeah. say to me, Hey, would you want to coach 12 to 16 year olds? I, I would probably say, no, I don't. I want to coach men. I want to coach professional soccer. Yeah. I want, I want to wake up on a Saturday morning feeling like shit because I know that uh, the game on Saturday means so much. And there's a fine line between winning and losing now I understand the benefit of coaching young players to see them progress and to see them develop. And you're, you're really, you're kind of molding professional, you know, the future of professional soccer. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you look at it, not too many guys. And I think in America too, because you want to get there, you want to make the money and you want to coach the pros. Um, yeah. I don't know if anybody gets the, the huge uh, benefit and enjoyment out of uh, coaching 12 to 16 year olds, you know, and coming home and going, Sweet, I'm in my uh, Rav Four, 1982 Rav Four, uh, <laughs> but don't worry, Tommy's going to get a scholarship to North Carolina and uh, possibly play in the German Bundesliga one day. <laughs> and he'll get me free tickets. Yeah, it's it's more like a <laughs> it's more like a teacher, you know, an educator. You know, my sisters are all teachers, and that that turns them on and motivates them. I, I'm not you as an example because you're sort of you know you've already coached at such a high level and done so well. I, I'm talking about you know I was watching when, um, you know, Christian Pulisic was talking about those formative years of where he really felt he made the jump. And it was during that period of time, thinking about myself as a player, you're 12 to 16, you're, you are not yet distracted by partying and girls and, and, you know, all that stuff. And so that's where like, you're putting in your hours on the ball, it whether it's in the backyard or whatever. And I have found uh, as well-intentioned as some people are, the people that coach those kids at that age, you know, I remember uh, I was trying to coach my daughter's team in, you know, in Manhattan and they said, Oh, you played at too high of a level. I go, I played in the NPSL. Give me, give me a break. You know, <laughs> I played at too high of a level. Like they're acting like it's the Bundesliga that I couldn't coach. They said, you guys are too intense. I'm like, no, I'm not. But then I, they make me referee. I go out in the first game to referee and the coach is pulling one of those defenders. Don't go over half field. I'm yeah. like, Oh my God. You know, to, in today's day and age, it was about 10 years ago. So maybe it's not like that anymore, but I, always thought it would be a good way for us to focus on American players to develop a better, a, de a better type of player. You know, I, I, I'll go back to, I want to go back down to the, to the foreign thing, because most of the EPL coaches with all the English attitude that they have, I mentioned this on the show all the time. Most of their top coaches aren't English. Most of their top players in the league aren't English yet. Yet it seems like a lot of them come here and, and coach or so I hope that doesn't happen with MLS. It seems like it already is because I go back to the NASL days where, boy, as an American player, man, you, you never got a shake. You, you know, there'd be like 20 of us trying out for two spots. And that was only to do public appearances, you know, because <laughs> like, you know, we could speak the language, you know, like, because I remember Bogisevich was like, Fuck the kids. I don't want to be around no kids. I do no more crap. It's like, uh, Flynn, go. Like, all right, great. So I don't have a question there, just guys. So I think, um, Grill, did you want to ask about MLS draft or Sam? Go ahead, Sam. Oh, yeah, just to, to wrap up, Tom, I thought it'd be interesting. We talked last time a little bit about the the sort of MLS feeling about NCAA players, and we have the Super Draft today. So I was just wondering what 
if there's any players, first of all, coming out that you're excited about and just sort of what that looks like from inside an organization, how you prepare for that, where it fits in the, the general kind of uh, recruiting component. Yeah, with, uh, with the latest, I was on, I was in, on uh, the, the, the committee with the Galaxy for the uh, draft coming up, so uh, I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, no. must, that must be tough to like, you know, you're trying to look, you're trying to look for, you know, you're panning for gold a little bit there, I think, with bit. college. You know, you, you really haven't had much exposure to watch the, t- the players play. You have to probably mm. go on coaches' recommendations. So historically, yes. how have you fit in who you're going to grab? Um, you, do you grab an athlete? Do you grab somebody with, you know, the, the good mind for the game? Um, when you know, I mean, they're trying to make the draft a bigger thing, but it's, I, I think for you coaches in MLS, you're in this cocoon. It's like college? Yeah. Oh, my God, it's another yeah. whole world. Yeah, I think we spoke about it before. The impact of the NCAA draft on MLS teams is, is getting less and less as it goes on. A uh, couple things: uh, a lot of players are signing homegrown contracts, or they're attached to the year to their academies, so they kind of have the the right of first refusal. So sometimes you would go to a game. Like I was lucky enough when I was coaching San Jose, Stanford had a real good team at the time, and they would go very very far in the NCAA tournaments. So you would see a lot of good teams coming through. But half the time you're going, okay, he's with Salt Lake. Oh, he's with uh, DC. So you're not really, you're trying to, you're trying to find, you said panning for gold. It's a great way to look at it now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and especially now with the Corona, you can't go to games. The season has been, you know, suspended. It doesn't start now until the spring, hopefully, uh, if things continue, you know, if they, hopefully things get better. So you're, you're relying on Y Scout. You're relying on word of mouth from coaches. And a lot of times coaches will go the extra mile to help out a player who maybe is not, MLS ready. Um, yeah. and, he, and, and so now if you look at what the galaxy did, we, tr- we actually traded picks with, uh, Portland, you know, I so said we there, but they get traded picks of Portland to get Jorge Villafana. Um, so now we went, I think from the eighth position to the 16th position. So, and, and the death chart, I'll be honest with you, a, a lot of foreigners now are, are the ones that are the playing in college. So do you take a chance on a young foreigner or do you want to use that foreign spot on, a more established kid who's at 2021 has played maybe 50 to hundred games of professional soccer in his, in his home country or somewhere else. So it is a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a real crap shoot. Cause I still think the top five, top six are pretty easy. Um, there's some real good players out there. The kid, I like the kid, Kamarni Smith, the English kid from, from Clemson. I thought he was ready to come into MLS last year. Obviously he went back and played. Um, and I think, you know, I think he'll be one of the top picks, uh, of, of this year. I, I, I think he, he's one of those guys. I think he's ready. He's can be guys on the dribble. Uh, he can create his own thing. So I think he's for me, I don't know if he's the number one overall pick, but he's the one guy that I thought when I watched him play, like, Hey, this guy's got something that a lot of guys don't have, you know? So it's a little bit more intense now, um, as far as trying to get the right pick because either you're, you're choosing for your second team or you're, you're taking a huge chance, not a huge chance, but you're taking a chance on and hoping that, uh, you know, that somebody who, may, who maybe people don't really know, you know, kind of escapes the, the eyes and, and does well. You know, like we, we picked Jeff Cameron one time, the last pick of the third. I think I said this last pick of the third round in like 2009. Saw him play at the Combine. Uh, John Spencer was there. John Spencer goes, I like the big guy. He looks like a good athlete and runs well. And I said, great, put him down on the paper. We'll take him and we'll see how it goes. And two weeks into the preseason, I was like, holy shit, we got ourselves a good player here. You know, mm-hmm. so just yeah. lucky. You know, so, and I think um, in saying that, you know, good luck to the guys that they deserve a chance. And I think there'll be some good pros coming out of it tomorrow. Good, good stuff. Well done, man. It's, it's a lot of things to consider as a coach. You know, you think it's just just X's and O's and going out there and, you know, yelling at the boys and, and having a bit, but so much goes into it. I don't think people generally, you know, uh, realize how much. So, you know, when I met you, you had a full head of hair, a big, huge mullet, and now it's all gone. So it's all that information that's been kicking around in your brain. (laughs) (laughs) And dropped your hair out. So um, (laughs) best of luck, man. You're, you're, uh, you're uh, on the dole three days here. uh, With all you know, know, uh, (laughs) you're just building a contract. But um, you got a great soccer mind and a great uh, a great CV, as they call it, um, these days. So uh, best of luck with your job search. And join us again on Over the Ball, please.
Anytime, guys. Sorry it took me a little while to get connected here. Uh, <laughs> circumstances a little bit out of my control, but I love being on the show with you guys. I tell you this, Dom. Half the time we pull up, you know, like a coach or somebody to talk, it's like they call their son in the room. They're like, hey, what, what's this button? What? <laughs> so it's all part of the package. So we, yeah. we, we raise them and then they teach us. So uh, yeah. Dominic Kinnear, thanks so much for joining us on OTP. Thank you, guys. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. God, love talking to Dominic, guys. I don't, you know, uh, great soccer mind. Um, I don't think he'll be unemployed very long, uh, to tell you the truth. They need a, you know, it's funny, though. He's mentioned the, the sort of foreign influence now on coaching. I had always seen it as a player. You know, you had to have, back in the old NASL days, we had to have a couple of, uh, you had to have a couple of American players. Um, maybe, are we going to get to a point where coaches, we don't have no American coaches here in the United States. It just, it, it pisses me off. Well, he sort of, he sort of jumped the gun on my question because I wanted to ask him about that. But uh, yeah, I looked it up this morning and now more than half, 14 out of 27 uh, coaches in MLS are not American. One is Canadian. So I guess that's not technically foreign because we have teams in Canada. North American, but- yeah, but um, yeah, it's a, it it's a little concerning, I think, just because mm-hmm. as we talked about, you know, often these guys come in and they bring their whole staff with them. It's not like you know a guy comes in and younger American coaches get to work under him and maybe learn something. Um, it's I, I, I don't know. I, it's a tough question. Yeah, yeah, and it may be a maybe a phase. You know, who who knows? Well, uh, everything's a phase, but it sounds. Uh, and I think it, they think it sounds good. You know, like hey, we're bringing in a guy from the Bundesliga or whatever, and people are like, oh, whoa, incredible. Well, you know, I mean, part of it was like, uh, you know, like our friend of the show, Mike Noonan, the head coach of Clemson. I've always thought, like, why isn't he coaching MLS? He does such a great job melding foreign-born players with American players, and that's basically what MLS is. And uh, you know, here we did talk to Dominic about a coach being a psychiatrist in so many ways about how do you, you know, develop and groom these players and how yeah. do you mix different styles. And so, um, yeah, I hope it's a trend that doesn't continue. You don't, you don't want to lock anybody out, but you no. want to continue to develop as a country, um, you know, your, your coaches as well as your players. Look, we've always focused so much on our players being national team players and, and being, you know, able to play overseas that, maybe we've taken our eye off the ball as far as uh, coaching, because I believe, you know, I got Bob Bradley, man, that's yeah. uh, he's good as they come. It really is. We know that Dom will be back in the saddle soon. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, okay. Sam, what do you got for us today with the, as far as a quiz, I got my number two pencil sharpened. Good. Uh, <laughs> so we mentioned earlier in the show and it's been all over the place that Messi received his first ever Barcelona red card this past weekend right. in his 753rd appearance for the club. I'm wondering, and this is this has also been out there, uh, so you guys may have seen it. But how many red cards has he received playing for Argentina in his career? I'm going to say f- three. I would say three as well. That's my number. Yeah. Okay, it's uh, actually just two. So he oh, okay. actually was sent off in his debut in a friendly against <laughs> Hungary in 2005, and then uh, more recently in 2019 in the Copa America against. I remember that. Chile. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So because it's impossible not to compare the two, um, how many, sorry. He was getting kicked in that game. And then I think in the first game you played, they were, they were sort of giving him trial by fire, you know, and and taking some shots at him. It's amazing. Um, I I think I'd have probably 200 red cards if I, if I had, if I had Messi's ability, maybe if I had Messi's ability, my Irish temper wouldn't wouldn't be as uh, rear as I, I, I don't. I don't think you'd be hosting over the ball right now. To be exactly. Honest with you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Ne- next question. Uh, because it's impossible not to compare the two. How many red cards has Cristiano Ronaldo received in his career? I'm going to say f- six. There's seven. Okay, it's actually ten, and they Whoa. have all come in his club career. Interestingly, he's never gotten a red card playing with Portugal. So the sort of opposite wow. of Messi. That's a pretty. That's a pretty substantial number, don't you think? Yeah, uh, I mean, he's been playing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but you think about guys. You know. think about Messi's attitude, and you think about Ronaldo's attitude. Messi just like you know, people take a dirty shot at him. He just kind of looks up at him like, "Who? What?" Yeah, what he's quiet, and Ronaldo's Ronaldo's much more temperamental. You don't see you don't yeah. see Messi running to the corner and taking off his shirt. <laughs> no, you don't. No, happen. you don't. 
Yeah. If I, if I could play like Messi or Ronaldo, I'd run to the corner, take off my pants and flex. Are you kidding me? I'd be like, hey, what's up? I'd love, I would love to take a run at Ronaldo on occasion. <laughs> God, you'd bounce off him. Like I, the I would, he, he, he's a, he's a beast. That guy's a beast. <laughs> he's definitely a beast. Yeah. Um, okay. So keep keeping the comparison going. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to look at their league finishes over the years. So Messi's Barca are currently in third place in La Liga behind Atletico and Real. Wow. What is the lowest league position Messi has ever finished in with Barcelona? I'm going to say fifth. That's what hit me too. So I don't want to say. Okay, fifth. you can say fifth. You can, you, can say be, you can be with me, and we can both be wrong. <laughs> I will not be with you. Uh, so it's actually only third place, and it happened just one time in 2007, 2008. Otherwise, uh, Barca have been first or second every season. Oh my Messi God. I just played. figured there had to be one season that was an anomaly. And it was yeah. probably early in the season, too. You know? Yeah. Um, so finally, Ronaldo, uh, who's Juventus, are currently in fifth place in Serie A behind Milan, Inter, Napoli, and Roma. What's the lowest position Ronaldo has ever finished in? With Man United, Real, and Juve, I'm not counting his one season at Sporting. Seventh. I'm going to go up to fourth. Okay, it's also third place. Oh my uh, God. However, yeah. it has happened four times in his career. His first two okay. seasons with Man U, 2003, 2004, and twice with Real. Four times. Four what times. a heck! They have both enjoyed a lot of success. So it's worth pointing out that uh, yeah. you know Juve this season may give Ronaldo his lowest league finish ever if they don't step there it up. There you go. What does he do? You think he goes? He leaves? What's his contract situation, Sam? Uh, I don't know how long he's under contract for. I could see him leaving after this season. I maybe don't think it's up at Man U. Maybe. Maybe that would, I be, think that would be storybook. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if he had another you know big name move left in him. Um, still producing. I just don't think it's really clicked for him at Juve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, you, you get a player of that stature, you definitely change your playing style to play around that. And you see how unsuccessful it is in Argentina with, with Messi. You know, he goes down there and he's the greatest goal scorer ever. And yet they he's kinda... not had a great supporting cast, though, to be fair. Well, no, it's, but look, great players, right? But what I'm saying right. is the, the style, it's almost like we, we could go back to the Liverpool note, which is saying they're looking for the other player to do it. Nobody's really taking the onus and saying, you know, God damn it, I'm going to score here. I'm going to take it to the net. Yeah. They're all looking to pass it off. I think that happens with Argentina sometimes, you know, with the, the talent that they have. My God. And yet yeah. they play with Messi and maybe you're depending on Messi too much. You know? So, yeah. All for right. Sure. All right. That's, uh, that's it, guys. Anything else before we wrap it up here? I'm going to watch Man United Liverpool English FA Cup fourth round this Sunday at Old Trafford. And they just played each other. So that'll be interesting. Wow. That yeah. should be a very interesting matchup. Yeah. Now, you're, now you're trying to make that game sound interesting after. Well, I am. I'm not going to. No, Sam, I didn't call it. No, Sam, I didn't call it fascinating okay. <laughs> yet. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> well, you know, to play a team back to back like that—that's uh, that's something else, man. That's chess uh, game. Could be a chess game. It could be another yeah, boring. I affair. hope not. I hope it's wide open, <laughs> attacking. Sam, what are you looking at? Uh, Milan Atalanta on Saturday at noon, ESPN Plus. That's a good one. Ibra is back for Milan. Scored two goals in his return uh, on Monday. Not, he's a machine against Coyote. Atalanta have been struggling a bit recently, but it still should be a good one. And then Sunday morning, I think I'll check out Schalke against Bayern on ESPN Plus, not because it's a good game on paper. Schalke are actually dead last and Bayern are top of the table, but I'd like to see Matthew uh, Hoppe or Hoppy play. Sorry, the young American who um, scored again this past weekend. Did he really? Wow. Yeah. So curious. We should have led with that. That's always goal scoring. They got to get him in camp. Yeah. Imagine a goal scoring American in the European leagues and we don't report on it here until the very end. I mean, this is what's changed. Well, he didn't he didn't score a hat trick. Let's let's be fair on ourselves, you know. I yeah, mean, if he yeah. keeps scoring every week, we can lead with him. Yeah, but it'd be well, it's good news anyway, Sam. Yeah. So thanks for keeping us uh, up to date on all that. All right, everybody. Uh that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. We'd like to thank our guest, Dominic Kinnear. Um and uh and you guys, uh Sam Griswold, Grail Hallett. I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB.